Okay. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of Dr. Jill Live this afternoon. Um, as many of you struggle with mold-related illness and have sought me out for different expertise in that realm, I am super excited for our guest today. I think for any of you who either know a lot about mold or don't know much at all about mold, it will be incredibly enlightening and helpful resource for you today. Um, I'm going to first introduce my guest, um, Jim Tomlinson is a certified indoor environmentalist and certified mycotoxin and mold specialist with extensive knowledge on mold and mycotoxins and other environmental issues. He's frequently called upon as an expert witness in court cases involving mold and mycotoxins. And what I love about Jim is he's a former real estate broker and developer, so he really understands building construction, building envelope, a lot of these things that, um, as you well know, if you've dealt with mold-related illness or mold toxicity in your own home or workplace, it's a really big deal because these are the kind of details that can be missed if you don't know what you're looking for. And we'll dive into today all kinds of questions about remediation, about what to look for, and Jim will share his expertise with us. Jim, I am so excited to have you here. Um, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Jill. It's a uh, pleasure to be here. Yeah, super excited. So I want to hear your story, but I'll frame this with kind of how you and I met. I have had a lot of clients and patients who've used you and had very good reviews and, and feedback. But recently, here I am kind of the mold expert and I had mold in my own condo right here a few months ago and you helped me with that. And I'm so grateful. What I want to talk about specifically today, we'll dive into the details, but why some of the things that, that you do, the way you do that are really important for patients to know about clients, other people who have mold related issues. But before we go there, we all have a story of kind of how we get into our business. And you were a former real estate broker and uh, construction, contracting, all of that kind of stuff, um, developer. And how did you make the transition? How did you get into what you're doing now? Tell us your story. Well, we um, we actually had never been to Colorado and came out and uh, to visit in 2010 and fell in love with it and wound up moving our family out here. Um, we survived or, or barely survived the real estate crunch in 2008. We had a 48-acre subdivision that we had developed. And, and, uh, and, and as you know, that market was horrible back in 08. So we got completely out of there, uh, out of the market, and uh, moved to Colorado from Georgia. Um, shortly thereafter, we were in the Waldo Canyon fires in Colorado Springs. And it was, it was when we were going, you know, if, if you're in a fire and you're taking your most value possessions, family photos is on the, probably the top of the list. So I went down into the basement to, uh, to retrieve a box or several boxes of family photos of the kids when they were young, et cetera, before the age of the digital age. And, um, and, and immediately found uh, black mold growing all in there. There had been a hose bib leak uh, draining down in that closet. So, um, so through that process of we had to evacuate for 10 days and when we came back, we had it tested. And that's when I first uh, first got into the mold business. I uh, connected with a gentleman uh, in Austin, Texas, Dan Yates of Texas Mold Consultants. And Dan and I started a, a business in Colorado called Smoke and Mold Services. Um, Dan stayed extremely busy in Austin and was, was hardly ever here. So we decided for me to just take it and run with it. And at that time, I changed the name and uh, dove uh, headstrong into the uh, mold business. With my background in uh, you know, real estate and construction, it was a good fit for me. So we, we, uh, I initially started out working for another company doing inspections and got basic training from them. And then combined with Dan's training, Dan's a mold assessment consultant, certified safety professional, professional engineer. So that's how we first got into the business and it, and it exploded. Um, I, um, I, 
put my hands on everything I could find out about mold and micro, uh, microbials and uh, VOCs and uh, uh, formaldehyde and other uh, biohazards. And, um, and, and uh, the Lord really blessed our business. So we've grown and grown and grown. So now we, uh, we've actually, uh, we have customers in 16 states now, so. Yeah, as you well know, and I well know, there's such a need. I, I always say this, like, I know the body and I can help people heal, but I right. always know, I, I can't tell you how many times, Jim, I've been sitting in front of a patient as I suspect with their history, they moved and all of a sudden they have brain fog and fatigue and autoimmunity or uh, chronic infection or all these signs that might point to the environment being a cause of their illness. And then as sure. I do the testing and see signs of mold, Again, I can help them heal their body, but always the rate limiting step for me and really any physician who does what we do is if their environment is contaminated with mold and mycotoxins, there's no amount of supplements or IVs or drugs or anything at all that can reverse that. So I really rely on people like you in the industry that know what you're doing. And as we both know, the other thing I want to talk about today is um, there's a lot of mold remediation companies and great people out there, but sure. not a lot of them understand the depth of the chronic illness that can be caused by mycotoxins. And as you and I know from being in court cases to like testify for the patient and the client, um, even in those kinds of cases, it's really um, a lot of, uh, a lot of people don't understand, right? So right. That's right. Yes. There's, there's that uh, overlap with what we do as environmentalists in the medical community. And that, as you said, you guys recognize no matter how well you detox your patients for toxic mold exposure, they return to the toxic mold environment. They'll never get well. We recognize no matter how well we clean up that environment, yeah. if they don't detox, they will not be better so uh yeah, we so need we, it we, we both need we, we really do yeah it's a, it, mm -hmm. otherwise it's a revolving door and, and yeah. they're just back yeah so so um so that's that's i think that's why um we you know we cherish the referrals from the medical community because it, it's a it's a two for one we we uh not, not only do we have satisfaction when we've cleaned up their environment but that we are playing a little part in that in that healing journey for them as well so yeah. And again, with like the group like ICI and some of the groups that train physicians, I'm on the board there, but of other groups that deal with mold related illness, probably the number one topic of conversation among uh, medical doctors and practitioners is how do we get a good um, environmental expert in the patient's home to help? So again, I want to bring awareness around what you do and why it's so important. That kind of frames our conversation. Um, sure. I, I'll go back to my experience as well. And this ended up being a, a leak from a neighbor's fridge. And um, here I am again, knowing that I started to have symptoms of brain fog and fatigue, kind of like mold, but I'm so fastidious about cleaning my drains and doing everything right. And the biggest lesson I learned, and some people have heard me say this on recent podcasts is De detach the uh, water line from your fridge. It's just not worth the ice cubes <laughs> because, because it's so often yeah. one of the hidden things. That's uh, one of those things that can happen. And anyway, and unbeknownst to me, there was a water leak and it um, caused damage to my condo and caused some really nasty catomium uh, to yes. grow. And we remediated that and fixed it. But I wanted to say the first thing is, you know, you really have to be careful. Even if you know what's going on, there's things that can leak and can happen and you think it's no big deal. And it can turn out to be a really big problem. Even like you with the photos in the basement, here you are a contract. I know you've built homes so um, carefully and, and uh, craftsmanlike, and yet here in a home that you own too, it's these things that we don't even know that can be our biggest problem. Um, one thing I wanted to say before I ask you, like what you would do in a situation is, um, again, in a situation like this, the neighbor might be like, oh, we'll bring a contractor in, no problem, let's rip this out. And I'm like, no, because you and I yeah. know they're just... <laughs> 
what happens is as you start to blow up an area where you know there might be mold, the amount of contamination, cross-contamination that can happen if you don't do it right, really, really can make someone from a bad situation to way, way worse. So let's talk about that. Like when you first come in to examine a home and I maybe I suspect the patient has mold and then you come to see their house and they, you look, what, where do you start? Um, how do you look at the environment? And then tell us kind of the process of what sure. you Sure. We, we, um, what we do, we use a combination of visual inspection, the history of the home, and the history is very important because you may not, uh, there may have been a previous moisture intrusion issue that was corrected mm-hmm. and the, it built back, if you will, and then you, by looking at uh, structurally, everything looks fine. And without knowing the history of that home, you, uh, you wouldn't know to, to dive in a little deeper and find out if, well, maybe, you know, ask other questions. Was it professionally remediated? Um, you know, where was the area that, that, that was moisture, you know, that received moisture intrusion um, and things of that nature. Also, uh, we, we usually ask, is there anyone in the home that's symptomatic? Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes um, the customer may have read somewhere, have had a family member or a friend tell them about mold and they experienced some of those symptoms, but they may or may not have told, told us about it. So it's good to know that because that's, that's a, a key also. So we use history of the home, um, you know, is anyone symptomatic in the home, uh, visual inspection, and we look in all the places that we normally find mold, uh, the obvious areas where you have moisture coming into the home, uh, where you have uh, uh, plumbing, uh, vanities, uh, kitchen sink is a big one, dishwasher, ice maker, yeah. drain line, um, uh, that sort of thing around the perimeter of the home. If there's a basement, we like to, to look if it's, um, if, if there are windows uh, in that basement, some of those rooms, we like to look at the tack strips underneath those windows to see if there has been any moisture intrusion. And, and we, we, we use all of that data combined with air and surface sampling and swab sampling to determine if, if uh, mold, rec- uh, mold remediation is recommended. And then uh, we also like to collect dust samples for a mycotoxin panel. It's a composite test similar to the ERMI, but in my opinion, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's better than ERMI. Uh, it gives you the DNA, the Emma portion of that gives you the DNA of the genus and species of mold present in the dust, which is useful for you guys more for you than it is for us. But uh, we like to look at the mycotoxin levels to determine what type of uh, remediation is needed. Is it just what we call level one remediation where we micro contain the area, put it under negative air pressure, remove the water damaged building materials and, and remediate the mold and then wipe down and fog inside of containment, or does it, or is there cross-contamination where uh, there are mycotoxins scattered throughout the home and a a, a larger uh, remediation plan is is needed, so. Excellent synopsis of what you do and how to look at it. And I want to clarify for those of you listening, Jim just did a fantastic job of going through, but I want to make sure you understood what he said, because it's so, so important. First of all, um, when you're testing, these are actually tests you can do through your, like, Ideally, you want someone like Jim, but even in our clinic, we can actually start to order some of these things. And I want to differentiate the ERMI test has the name ERMI, as we both know, has gone by the wayside a little because that original data of how to score an ERMI ERMI has not been validated. But the underlying data, which is called qPCR, what that is, is DNA testing in your dust for mold species. That's accurate. And it's just one way among other ways, like you said, air sampling, surface sampling, uh, qPCR. And again, I say that because if you talk to some inspectors or mediators, some people in the industry, or we're talking in a court of law, ERMI has been invalidated. That that um, statistical evidence of scoring 
through the ERMI is we don't even use that. But what we do use is a qPCR, which is still sometimes called an ERMI. So as you're listening, if you yes. get confused, and I wanted to clarify because I like to talk to remediators like yourself or anyone in the qPCR language because then we know we're getting legitimate data and not using that ERMI um, sample. But the other thing you mentioned is really important. It's called an EMMA. So think about this. If you have mold spores in your home, um, these mold spores are going around. They're problematic, but when we inhale those, they don't actually like go through our um, lung tissues. They're too large. They don't go directly into the bloodstream. So they can cause allergies. They can definitely trigger immune inflammation. But the much worse issue is when either those mold spores are disrupted and go into a thousand parts like fragments. And that could be, I always think of the example, like say you have a dried flower arrangement, you either flick it or you blow on it. It just shatters into a million pieces. Or say you have you know, a piece of uh, blown glass that's thinning, you would flick it or, or hit it and it just shatters. When you take mold spores and you disrupt them from an environment, all of a sudden, this is why the containment is so important because if you shatter that environment where it was hiding behind the wall, all of a sudden a bad issue becomes so much worse, which is why I told you in the beginning when someone said, oh, let me just get the contractor and open that up. I'm like, no, we want it contained and we want to protect this because if you have an issue with mold and you think it's a do-it-yourself project, you could be in a world of hurt if you don't contain it and protect it. But back to the EMMA testing. Now, this is a whole nother level because we have the spores. We have fragments of spores, which starts to get smaller particulate and more damaging and more disruptive. But then even smaller than that is your mycotoxins. And those are the toxins produced by the mold that are invisible. They're smaller than 2.5 microns. So they can literally go into our lungs, right through the alveoli into the bloodstream without any do not pass go. It goes right into the blood. So those are actually the most toxic. And what I heard you say, Jim, and this is different from many, many people I've worked with in the past or even known, is you're actually testing that before you even do any containment or, or remediation, because you want to know in that patient's home in that environment, has there been exposure to the toxins that the mold produces? Because you and I both know that if you do the remediation perfectly and you take down containment, but before this ever happened, the house is loaded with toxins that are smaller than 2.5 microns, their books and their rugs and their clothes and their, their environment is going to be so contaminated that you might do that remediation perfectly, but they don't feel better. And I feel like this is so important to take a little time on because this is where I think many people have a remediation successful or partially successful, and they still feel incredibly ill. Now, hopefully that made sense to you listening, yes. but do you want to comment on that? Because I think that's Sure. We, we've, Dr. Jill, we've, we've, uh, we've had many, many times that we've come into a home where there has been, in fact, it happened just this, this, this past week, where the customer has had uh, professional remediation done and uh, in, the, in, the, in the interview process of questioning them about the remediation and water intrusion and that sort of thing they'll they'll uh, they'll explain that it was just just this one area and then um we'll find out that there may or may or may not have been post-testing done so that's a big uh big red flag that there for us if they're if they don't know that that the area was checked out then obviously we want to pull some additional samples on that as well but then um, a bigger issue is if it, even if they've had the uh post-testing done uh, I like to look at the lab data and the environmental data. And if it if they had stachybotrys or cotomium, aspergillus or penicillin present in high levels, and they, there was not a follow-up test done to find out if the mycotoxins were dispersed throughout the home, then we definitely want, want to, to recommend that to the customer. So... Um, yeah, thanks for helping me clarify, because this is one of the reasons I like, I want to talk to you and share this information, because 
for me as a clinician, what I've seen over and over is number one, if you say, do you have mold in your home? Patients are like, no, right? 99% of people either don't know it, don't believe it, are in denial or some form of they don't understand that connection to health. So that's the first thing. And so we have to ask the right questions, which is what you do when you inspect of like, well, have you had any water intrusion? Have you had any leaks? Have you had any? And if you start to see, I'd love to go through maybe some of the things that you might see under the sink or in the, like, what are like signs and things that people could look for in the house, like discoloration or, or those kinds of things? Yeah. Um, a lot of the baseboard trim uh, under windows, and we mentioned uh, uh, basement windows uh, earlier, uh, a lot of, a, a lot of the times, uh, MDF is used commonly. It's a modified dense fiberboard, I believe it's yeah. called, uh, it, for baseboard and trim. It's it's not wood, but it's made basically made of paper, yeah. and it's and it's compressed very tight. Um, the qualities of the MDF it'll swell very very quickly once it's exposed to moisture. So if you we we look for we use a, uh, a strong flashlight and we look for bubbling or swelling on the baseboard MDF areas around uh, laundry rooms and that sort of thing underneath the windows and basements. Um, and we'll gently pull back carpet and check the tack strips. Now I do. I don't recommend that anyone that's symptomatic do this at their own home because, as you said earlier, you can actually disperse these spores and mycotoxins in the air just by disturbing them. Uh, we're trained to do that very, very gently and, and to put it back. Um, one of the things that <clears throat> that we're asked often is, well, uh, can you go into the attic and check the attic out? Well, I had a customer just, just last week that had had another company come in and they had an immediate reaction after a gentleman went into the attic and pulled all that stuff back down. So we have to be very careful, even, even uh, we call it invasive inspection, where we go in and we can go into a wall cavity and we can look with a, with a scope and we can actually draw an in-wall cavity air sample and that sort of thing. But we have to be very careful not to just go in and do that. It, that area should be micro-contained and put under the negative air pressure before that invasive inspection is done. So it's, it's important that, um, We've had customers call and, and, and say, you know, I, we we had this issue. My husband went in and took the drywall out and now we're all sick. And yeah. those are the things you don't want to hear. And it's just the uh, the average person, just unless they've done some research online, is not aware of that. Yeah. But uh, but it's 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 better to call a professional. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I just love that you're saying that because I say that often and I, it's funny because my story years ago when this all started in my clinic after the Boulder floods, I had some massive mold in the basement. So I had, um, I've told this before, but it's, you'll almost laugh. First of all, we had an unfinished uh, crawl space right under my office that had water standing. And then in my office, there was old carpet and the contractor said, oh, let's just put in be beautiful new bamboo floors right over the old carpet. So every single step I took was soft bouncing on old gross like probably puffing up, you know, yeah. so that, and then the crawl space that was unfinished, finished. And then the lower level, which was the basement had bulk stacking. My very first experience was walking down with an inspector, no masks, no gloves, just my normal professional dress. And like, you know, with a, a, a putty knife, picking off the mold, taking a sample, but no protection. I look back and like, oh, oh no. my goodness, if I only <laughs> knew, right. It's no wonder I was yeah. sick. And I, now I know better. So I do like sure. that you're saying that because uh, like I said before, with the um, example of the dried flower, if you disturb something that's stuck behind a wall, it's again, it's not good that it's there, but if you disturb it without containing it, you can make a bad situation way worse. And I've seen that happen too many times as well. 
Um, you sure can. And as, and as you well know, uh, many, I'm sure many of your patients are extremely hypersensitive to mold. And, and uh, even uh, I, I mentioned Dan Yates earlier, he's in Austin and, and uh, who's been in this business for 35 years. And Dan has, has uh, uh, pointed it out that in, in the Austin area and certain times of year, the levels of aspergillus that are found outdoors are through the roof. Those levels, uh, we have several customers that are from the Austin area. They can't they can't live in Austin because of the, the fact that aspergillus penicillium is in the air, such high quantities in the summer. I believe it's the summertime. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And it really, it can be a huge issue. So the other thing about this is you and I are both dealing with the more sensitive patients, because as we know, there's a percentage of the population that is much more sensitive to this. And this is why it can be so confusing in a house when maybe your spouse or your son or daughter are perfectly fine and you're incredibly sick or vice versa. So there is a difference in the body's ability to get rid of these, to basically tag and eliminate these toxins. So there's a wide variety in how people present. Um, what do you think is the biggest thing you've seen as far as, uh, I often get asked, is it older homes? Is it newer homes? I think sometimes the newer builds are so quick, but is there any types of things as far as construction that worries you more um, as far as any, any tidbits at all that you've learned? We've had several customers that have bought brand new homes and, and had us come in to inspect and we found mold on the lumber that came from the lumber yard in the unfinished basement. Mm -hmm. And uh, in most cases, or in all cases, it can usually, you know, uh, or most cases, it can be remediated. You, you may still have moldy lumber behind the wall, though, and that's a, a major concern. Um, but uh, if you, it only takes 48 hours of continuous moisture and or relative humidity above 50 percent and a mold spore, which are ambient, they're everywhere. And, and, uh, uh, and a food source, which is, you know, lumber, drywall, carpet you know, the cellulose material, dust, and that sort of thing um, to start mold colonization. And that's, that's uh, so it's, you know, it can be on a new home. Uh, an interesting thing is in very old homes, like we've done quite a bit of business in Minneapolis and a lot of those homes downtown are built pre-1900. And we'll go into the unfinished cellars or basement areas and we'll see uh, what is, if I had to, to bet on it, I would say it's absolutely microbial growth, but we'll pull a sample and send it into the lab and it'll come back, no fungi detected. And I, I, the first thing, first time that happened, I called the lab director and I asked him to check it himself. I said, this is impossible, you know, but, uh, but I quickly learned that what happens is in very, very old mold growth, 60, 70, 80 year old, 100 year old mold growth. Um, the, uh, if you think of a, of a, of a dandelion, yeah. Uh, we may have blown that as a kid, used the analogy with the flower, and I, I like the dandelion, and, and, and all the seeds blow everywhere. Well, in very old mold growth, that's what you wind up with is just a bare stalk. Yeah. Um, all the seeds are gone. The mycotoxins have diluted over such a long decades of time. Uh, so so it, it, it actually looks like mold. It looks horrible, but it's but it's not a, of, of no health concern. Yeah. So, but then... Um, as I said earlier, in, in some cases, you may have a brand new home uh -huh. that has a toxic mold environment. Okay. That makes so much sense. Cause I've always said, you know, I'd almost rather live in a hundred year old log cabin with like holes in the walls because there's going to be uh, airflow and uh, dilutional effect of the airflow versus like a, I've seen some lead certified buildings are beautiful, amazing, but they're so airtight and they're either, you know, poor construction with how the moisture and the condensation and stuff happens. And I've seen some bigger issues than some of these newer homes, like you said. And I sure. think 
it depends on the area and the, the market for real estate, but certain times that the construction has been so fast and so, you know, kind of poorly done. I'm sure you've not been involved in that, but I think around here, like even right here by my condo, there's a ton of new, um, you know, like condos and, and quickly built things being put up. And I look at that and how the wood gets soaked in the snow and the rain. I'm like, oh, that's going to yeah. be an issue, right? We, we've seen, uh, we We've seen a very, very expensive home in in uh, California that was constructed poorly, um, and and had uh, areas that were just weren't ventilated. You and, and even in any home, if you think about it, when um, we have we had teenage, we have a teenager. Our youngest is eighteen now, but um, you know how teenagers are. They'll go in and they'll they'll uh, they'll take a real hot shower. All the drawers and doors and the cabinets will be open. Uh, the vent fan will not be on and it'll just be permeated with humidity and then they'll they'll leave and they'll leave everything or they may close the drawers, but uh, they've trapped that moisture inside of those cabinet areas and we've actually seen mold and mycotoxins growing inside of vanity cabinet area because of lack of ventilation so it's real important to, to be aware of how to mitigate the, the mold and the moisture and and keep your home safe. So those are those are very important things. I, I know you had shared with me you're you're working on a a, a document uh, and and uh, I think it's important to adopt a plan for your individual household based on do we have teenagers? You know that's yeah. a big. There are also um, and I don't want to to get away from our conversation, but there are also um, switches that you can retrofit in your bathroom, which they which have humidistats built in. Oh. They're fairly inexpensive, but they will automatically turn on that vent, bath vent fan uh, if the humidity uh, is, is rises to a certain level. You can set it at 35 or 40 percent or what have you. Again, we want to keep those humidity levels under 50 percent. Yeah, that makes sense. I have an out my harvest and home, a humid, like a humid stat, I guess you'd call it just a freestanding so I can always watch. Now, thank goodness in Colorado, doesn't mean we don't have mold, but the humidity generally in the ambient is pretty low. So it that is. makes it a little easier. But then what you can have is changes in condensation or humidity inside versus outside. And um, let's talk briefly about, I've heard, I don't know if this is true, but in Colorado, I've heard that crawl spaces are one of the biggest culprits. Tell us a little bit about crawl spaces, just the very 101 crawl space. What okay. if someone's going to look at them or what do you, what, what could sure. you about crawl spaces? Well, uh, crawl spaces, we, we don't, we don't want to see uh, corrugated cardboard or carpet. Uh, we've seen a lot of cases where homeowners will go in and they'll, because they don't want to crawl around their, their, their HVAC system may be in the crawl space. That's, I, I, I don't like seeing that at all, right. but their it's HVAC air unit, from their the air, potentially worst contaminated area. Right? Yes. Their air handler may actually be in the crawl space and they have to change those filters. So they'll roll out some old carpet scraps or what have you, or put cardboard down. And that's generally a, a very bad idea because the relative humidity in the crawl space could uh, could go up above 50 during certain times of the year. Maybe it's snow melt during the yeah. spring season or what have you. We've seen that happen. Um, and, and sometimes you can have subterranean moisture that will, during certain times of the year, there are creeks and whatnot that, that will rise and, and, and ebb and flow and, and uh, it can cause humidity levels to rise. Uh, what I like to uh, tell uh, customers is it's, it's real important if you have a crawl space to purchase a, an outdoor remote weather monitor that has a humidity uh, readout in it, a humidistat. Uh, they're about 32 bucks at Lowe's and Home Depot. You can put the transmitter in your crawl space and you can set your display on your uh, kitchen table or, or uh, you know, uh, an entry door area is a good place because you'll see it maybe once or twice a week at least. And just kind of monitor that humidity level to make sure it's, it's 
under 50% at all times. If you see it approaching 50%, I'd be concerned and I'd really pay close attention to it at that point. There are some things that um, we've recommended to customers, vapor barrier installation, for example, installing dehumidifier, uh, dehumidifiers with a, uh, it's important to have a built-in condensa condensation pump that will pump that water. You don't wanna have to go into your crawl space and dump a bucket every few days and that sort of thing. So there are ways that you can keep that relative humidity down. Um, but again, testing it on the front end, make sure, you know, find out is, is your home, uh, do you have high levels of uh, mold and mycotoxins in your home? And, and uh, are there areas that need to be invasively inspected? That sort of thing. Okay, that makes sense. And I know those crawl spaces can get expensive, but it's so important. And what yes. you mentioned too is whether it's our outlets or our um, can lighting or our crawl spaces, anytime there is connection of air to some other part of like yes. part of the making your house safe is sealing off ways that attic air um, crawl space air or other places where you don't have environment controlled to get into your house and to cross contaminate right yeah. like for example yes. if it has something if the crawl space is totally sealed and it has a little issue it won't get into your house but if it's not sealed or your hvac is pulling air from there it's a really big yeah. deal because <laughs> that's like yeah and and even even through mechanical entries from the crawl space in the attic you can still have uh, cross contamination and, and, and yeah. air pressure changes, just normal pressure changes within a home can can draw some of that air from the attic and from the crawl space. So even though we don't hang out and live in the crawl space yeah. in the attic, it's still important to maintain those environments as well because they there is that some uh, air transference from time to time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I'm glad because people don't really think they're like, oh, well, that's fine. It, and often people say, well, it's an issue in my master bath, but I stay downstairs most of the time. So so they think of that the house, if they're in one location, it won't affect them. But as you and I know from the uh, dandelion to the dried flower, if you do mm -hmm. disturb that, all of those toxins can basically distribute and it uses the lungs or the, uh, you know, uh, of our home, which is the HVAC system. So that's one right. more thing. Let's kind of go back real quickly, because I think we sure. were clear, but you talked about if you have mycotoxins, you do remediation, but say that mycotoxin test, the test that is for the um, mycotoxins in your home before the remediation are present, you actually have to go back. And what I'd recommend, and I think you would too, is um, you clean the HVAC system for sure. You need to yes. fog and bring that yes. particulate down to surfaces and then to clean. Yes. Is that the order yes, well, 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 what we uh, do is uh, we call a level two fine particle enzyme cleaning. We go in and we place a, uh, a fogger that's fogging in five to 10 micron particle sizes. We use a plant-based botanical product that smells like clove oil because it has a lot of clove oil in it. Um, it's completely safe for humans and pets, according to the manufacturer. And we haven't had any, see, uh, and I'm, I'm sure that many of your customers if, uh, are chemically sensitive. They develop chemical sensitivities. My, my wife has been battling Lyme for seven and a half years. Uh, her name's also Jill. And yeah. <laughs> um, Jill, Jill is, uh, it's been a, a healing journey for us uh, for the last, you know, almost a decade now. And uh, she's extremely immunocompromised. So we test her homes regularly and we treat them regularly to make sure that we, you know, she's not also having to battle mold and mycotoxins. Um, we just did a mycotoxin, environmental mycotoxin test just a month ago, but, and it came back clean. Um, but, uh, but, it, but it's just, it's just um, you know, dealing with, um, as you mentioned earlier, uh, a lot of our customers are are sick. They're sick from toxic mold exposure. The interesting thing is, is it, it um, the stats are what 25 to 28 percent of the population has that genetic makeup. Yeah. So it's not uncommon for us to go into a household where there's a family of four and only one of the family members are, are mm -hmm. symptomatic. The other three are fine. Right. So they're dealing with those these 
these individuals that are sick are dealing with all sorts of things. Uh, they're, um, they're, they're, they have family members and friends that are maybe naysayers about mold. And then, and then you, you couple that with, you know, there's fairly small percentage of physicians that are actually mold savvy, such as yourself. Um, you, you know, you're, I, I think you're probably the best, but, um, but, uh, and, and we're blessed that my wife is, is one of your patients as well. So, um, but, um, <clears throat> but it's important for, you know, the, 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 to, to convey that to the, to the well family members. And in some families, it's, it's absolutely, I mean, everyone gets it, yeah. but in many families, uh, the, the one person that's sick, sick feels very alone. Yeah. And it's real important to educate the other family members. And we try to do that. We have an informational that we send uh, email to them that just kind of stimulates thought and, and encourages them to dive in deeper about mold and mycotoxins and, and to, to, to find a physician that's mold savvy so that they can get well. Because as we said earlier, no matter how well we clean up that environment, if they don't detox, they're never going to get well. So yeah, it's like this two-part approach. Um, I love that yes. you're saying that. Now I know we have a comment today, and I've heard this over and over again. The best thing is to get someone in. You have to get the source. No amount of fogging or cleaning. If you don't get the source, will ever completely fix that. But right. we have people who sometimes are stuck for a few months, or stuck for a year, or they're renting, or there. There's so many situations that are just so sad because someone is stuck in a situation where they know there's mold and they don't know what to do and they can't move immediately. Um, would you, in that case, um, suggest uh, fogging and cleaning just to give them, buy them some time? Yes, yes. And, and sorry, I, I got away from the original question. So when we do the fine particle enzyme cleaning, we actually place a turntable in the center of each room as we're, we're cleaning fine particles. And we have that dispersing at five to 10 microns of particle size. So what happens is we work very methodically top down, left to right, floors lastly, and we go bi-directionally on the floor. And the reason for that is, have you ever, have you ever dusted before and you, you, you dust thoroughly and you come back to the area you just dusted and there's another layer of dust on it. And the reason for that is, is a certain percentage of those particles are going to escape the HEPA vacuuming or escape the microfiber wipe down or, or whatever uh, your method you're using to, to dust, um, a certain percentage are going to escape and then they're going, going to resettle. So this, this, with this approach, those uh, fogging particles of five to 10 microns and particles uh, size are colliding with dust particles and they're weighting down and they're falling ground very quickly. So it's real important to work top down, left to right so that you don't miss anything nice. and to be extremely thorough. And the more thorough you can, uh, can be the the better you're you're going to be because the, there's that relationship with mold and mycotoxins and dust where the mold and mycotoxins stick to the dust particles, and uh, so it, even in level one remediation, the the last phase of the of the cleanup is to, to HEPA vacuum everything yeah. inside of containment, get rid of the dust. So yeah. it's it's real important to do that. But we've had um, we've had 100% success with that treatment. So yeah. far, and then it's important also to follow up after, and sometimes it can take 30, 60 days before yeah. you'll have enough dust to collect the sample, yeah. but to follow up and pull that mycotoxin test post remediation and see what those levels are to get confirmation that the, the mycotoxins are in the, all groups are in the not present category. Love that. And I love that you described it because I think this, again, is one of those things where if you just remediate and you don't really clean the environment, um, once in a great while, I'm sure that mycotoxins are not present before you remediate, and then you maybe don't need to be as thorough, which is great, but that's not super common. And I will go even further to say, if you're someone like me who is mold sensitive, I literally maybe twice a year fog just prophylactically. And I did mm -hmm. that at my office. Yes. 
this is something I learned really kind of cool, Jim, after the fires, of course, all that damage was the same. It wasn't mold, but it was fine particulate material that was causing damage to our lungs and our brains and everything. And as yes. we learned after the fires, it was almost as bad as far as patients labs as it was with a mold. So I literally, I, I got the estimate from the professional company for my office and it, it, it was crazy amount of money. I won't even tell you how much it was. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try fogging myself. And we had our, our staff and people that I, we actually fogged and cleaned ourselves. And I think we did a great job because we all have been completely symptom-free testing yeah. has been negative, but it was interesting because we could use that same uh, method in even a post fire situation. to sure. get Absolutely. And it worked Absolutely. really well. <laughs> it was like, yes. Uh, so same, same thing. And I was just going to say with my experience with that clove product you use, it was excellent, like no reaction at all. I was really pleased with, with that outcome. Um, yeah. I wanted to, wanted to say that, you know, as, as you mentioned uh, just now, um, it, you know, the, the ultimate fine particle enzyme cleaning is pulling everything out of every closet, everything out of every drawer, decontaminating all of those personal contents. And, um, and then, you know, when we, uh, do that level of cleaning. We take photos beforehand and we try to place everything in the back in the same place. So it's very, very labor intensive and, you know, time is money, labor is money. So a lot of our customers can't afford that. So what we've done is we've developed um, hybrids, if you will, where if they have non-symptomatic family members, we uh, um, they're able to participate and we can have one person there trained to oversee the project, to provide all of the equipment and the know-how and the technology to to see the pro you know the uh, project completed, and they can save a lot of money and make it more affordable. I like to tell our customers that we want we can do as little or as much, but we we want to try to find where those lines cross and try to help you you know develop the best plan to get you know for your cleanup of mycotoxins and mold. I but, love uh, that because we both know kind of the gold standard. Even me with testing too, I could do like. Sure. You know, thousands of dollars of tests, but often I'm negotiating, okay, what's the bare minimum that we can really get, get information and you can still afford to test or whatever. And same thing with you, which I sure. appreciate that. Um, so let's see, we talked about crawl spaces. I, I kind of want to wrap up, but this has been so such practical information. Um, uh, some pumps and basements, we talked a little bit about those kinds of things. What about, let's just talk real briefly about some pumps. And, and if you're under the, so basically anything where you're below grade, is prone to water because there's going to be pressure yes. from there. What are some of the things you think about with a below grade uh, basement or things? In general? Yes. Well, well, um, we have uh, in the past we've installed uh, perimeter drains and and crawl spaces and installed a, a sump pump. We don't our business model. We don't do that any longer. We sub that out to other companies that do that. But in extreme cases where you have moisture coming in. Uh, maybe the rising water from a un under underground subterranean uh, some creek or what have you that's right that rises water pressures um, it, you know that's sometimes needed um, in many cases especially in Colorado like we said earlier it's very dry here the ambient humidity levels usually around 20 percent 25 percent or less um, so uh, water spills and that sort of thing dry up very quickly but I, I did want to point out that sump pump basins themselves can be can harbor mold we've seen that uh, many times ketomium stacking but well usually ketomium or aspergillus penicillium we had a uh, customer uh, six months ago or so that was on a septic system mm -hmm. and we had a very small project in a half bath where we took out a vanity and, and uh, pulled a toilet and took up the flooring um, and some drywall removal and uh, one of the things that we'll do is, is we'll put a, a, a plug into the drains so that, uh, it, you know, uh, the negative air pressure doesn't suck septic gases and sewer gases up into the area. 
So one of those plugs became dislodged. So when we came back to pull the post remediation air samples inside of containment, it came back through the roof with aspergillus. And, and uh, I knew immediately what it was. I said, check the plug. So, uh, oh yes, we didn't see that. It, it, it came, uh, someone either removed it or it came out uh, unplugged. But uh, what it was doing was it was draw, actually drawing mold from and mycotoxins from the septic tank itself into that room because of the negative air pressure. So we know that it's important, especially with empty nesters, mm -hmm. if you're in a, a septic system or, or, or even a, a public sewer system mm -hmm. and you have a, a, a basement bath that's not being used, it's important to keep the P-trap uh, either plug that area, which is dangerous if you had a leak, it could flood. Yeah. But, uh, but the, uh, another pro uh, possibility is to keep that, that P-trap, may, maybe run the water, run the yeah. spigot every three or four days just to fill the P-trap up, just for a few seconds to fill that P-trap up. People think that the P-trap is to retrieve your wedding band if you accidentally wash it, but it's actually to keep those gases from coming uh, back into yeah. it. But it's yeah. important to know that those those gases could also be uh, introducing mold and mycotoxins into your home. Oh, such practical things. Um, Jim, this is so great. Thank you again today for taking the time, for sharing your knowledge, for all that you do. Um, where can people find you if they want to know more information? Your website, I think, is Mold Services. Mold, moldservices.com, or you can uh, email me at Jim Tomlinson at moldservices.com, or my number is 719-659-5456. Awesome. And we'll be sure to include that in the show notes. Um, Jim, thanks again for the work that you do for those who are sick and suffering, and, uh, and it's so needed. We greatly, greatly appreciate all the wisdom you bring to this topic. Thank you, Dr. Jill. It's an honor to be here. Thank You're you. welcome.